Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the eating and drinking practice. John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas to betray him, but Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his apprentice's feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. A shift in role from the host to the servant. That's what's going on. Look at 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes back on and returned to his place. And then he said, do you understand the gravity of what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. That's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Notice the word hospitality is not used, but this is a story about hospitality, about Jesus eating and drinking with his apprentices and at the end practicing hospitality. Here's a basin, here's water, here's a practical need. This is the ancient Near East. You do the math, no asphalt and no closed-toed shoes, right? It was an acute need at the time. Jesus practicing hospitality and then you should do as I have done for you. And that's exactly what the original apprentices of Jesus did. Turn over to Acts chapter 2, just a few pages to the right. Here's another story just a few weeks later from the exact same group of people. Acts chapter 2, take a look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to a number of things, the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, or that can be translated community or life around a table, to the breaking of bread or eating together, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property, possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, but then they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." Notice that in that synopsis of the original church, the one practice that is repeated, not once, not twice, but three times is eating together. 42, to the breaking of bread. 46, every day they continued to break bread. And 46 as well, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This is 1,500 years before Gutenberg. It's two millennia before Bill Gates and Microsoft Word. If you want to emphasize a point, you don't have italics or underline or bold or a highlighter as an option. You have one option and one option only, you repeat it. He is just driving the point home. Eating together was core to the original church. Here's a few more greetings from Paul's letters in the New Testament. Romans 16, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church that meets at their house. 
Colossians, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. Philemon 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend, fellow worker, also to two people, and to the church that meets in your what? Home. Notice the through line from Jesus of Nazareth to the early church, all the way into Paul's letters, all through the New Testament is Jesus' apprentices eating and drinking around a table in a home as family. The New Testament tells the story of how the church spread from just a few dozen people around a table with Jesus out into the streets of Jerusalem, all through the Roman Empire to what it is today, a global historic movement numbering two plus billion people that are breathing right now as we speak. But the New Testament just tells the story of the first few decades. One way to tell the story of the last two millennia is through the lens of architecture. Stay with me for just a minute or two and let me nerd out on you. Depending on how you mock me, but you kind of like it. You kind of don't like it. You kind of like it. Depending on how you break it down, there have been four or so stages of church architecture, at least in the West over the last two millennia, each of which corresponds to a stage of church history. First was the home. For hundreds of years, followers of Jesus built zero buildings. That was not an option when you're running from a government hit squad and your religion or spirituality is against the law. So everything was done in the home. And the center of gravity at this stage of the church was the table. Now, in spite of the law, the gospel spread all through the empire, and as churches grew in size and paganism started to die out, some churches moved into basilicas or into the temples that were now defunct of Apollo or Zeus, but they were basically large octagon-shaped homes, and still the center of gravity was the table. Then, once the way of Jesus was legalized in the fourth century, and it spread out to the edge of the empire, the church then started building cathedrals. Early on, they were all Romanesque in style. Later, you have the Gothic style, like Notre Dame in Paris, if you've ever been there, or the Baroque style in Italy. But almost all of them were built in the shape of a cross. If you have a bird's eye view of Westminster Abbey or something in London, it's literally in the shape of a cross with the nave there in the middle. And with this shift, the meal devolved into a drink of wine and a bite of bread. We'll talk more about that next month, and was that a good move or not? And if you've ever been to any one of these cathedrals, you know that the acoustics are designed to bounce off the walls. Anybody like the tourist thing in St. Paul's or something like that, you can't hear a thing, right? I could not stand up and teach in front of a crowd of people even if I wanted to. It's not designed for that. The mass was said in Latin for hundreds of years in spite of the fact that nobody spoke Latin except for a few of the priests. In its best iterations, it was mystical. In its worst, it was magical. But either way, Way, you could not stand up and teach. Then in the 16th century, out of the Protestant Reformation and the church's return not only to the Bible but to the teaching of the Bible, this is before uh, the modern printing press is doing its thing at the level it is now. It's before the internet. It's before the podcast. If you wanted to hear the Bible out loud in your own language and hear somebody interpret it to you, you had one option and one option only. You go to church. And there was somebody up there preaching the gospel or teaching the Bible to you. And so 
so architecture evolved to the colonial style church, which is essentially a, a box, a rectangle-shaped box. They come in all shapes and sizes. Most of these in the U.S. are on the East Coast because they're a bit older now. And so you have like high-end Presbyterian and Episcopalian churches like this in New York. Presbyterians and Episcopalians have all the money. I just, if somebody had told me when I was in seminary, like, become an Episcopalian, where were you? Where were you? But what can I say, have all the money and fantastic taste in architecture. From that all the way down to a stripped-down country church, or think of the Shaker Church that is basically a barn with a steeple on top, and it was a preaching box. It was a box that was designed for basically two things, what I'm doing right now, and then it doubled as a community center, both for the church and for the town. And at that point, the center of gravity shifted from the altar to the pulpit, and there was a redesign in church after church from the altar in the middle to the pulpit it up high. Then, around the turn of the last century, with, and it's complex here, and again, I'm not a sociologist, I don't claim to get it all, but at least at the same time as the rise of entertainment culture, due to technology such as radio, and then later TV and film, due to urbanization, where people now were all crowded together in a city and would go out on the town in search of something to do, around the same time, music started to play a much larger role in the church in the West. Now, worship by singing has always been around since before the time of Christ. That's not new at all. I'll read you a quote in just a minute. But the emphasis on worship by singing and the kind of worship by singing with a pipe organ and a choir, which again we think of as old school, but actually in the stream of church history is a new idea. Plus at the same time, we protesters or Protestants started to spend more money on church buildings again, and the church evolved to a theater style, which is what we're in right now, a stage a built-in piper organ. This building is actually a great example of it. Look around you. We think of it as a church because of the stained glass, and it kind of is, but really, from a functional level, this is a theater. There's a stage. Notice it's sloped up so that you can see onto the stage, not just hear me, but see me. I don't, that's a little creepy. There's a pipe organ there, this piano. The whole thing is designed to project music and preaching out to you. And at this point, the center of gravity shifted from the pulpit to the stage itself. And this is still the dominant style. Even if you go to, say, um, the quintessential suburban mega church in a converted warehouse with a giant parking lot out front, we think that is a different style of architecture, that's just a larger, less cool version of this building. It's still rows facing a stage that is designed for speaking and for music. Now, again, don't misread me. I'm not moralizing any of this or good at bad. I'm just doing my best to tell you the story. My point is, with each shift, there are things about the modern church that we assume are normal such as a theater, such as hundreds of people facing a stage, that were not always normal. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's telling that the original architecture of the church, at least until the fourth century, far beyond that in certain parts of Europe, and still to this day in China and other places where the gospel is still illegal, the original architecture was a table and a home. And that says something about what the church at its core is. Most of you know that the word Christian is used a meager three times in the writings of the New Testament. 
There are two other far more dominant words for what you and I are in our relationship to Jesus and to each other. The first is mathetes in Greek, which we translate disciple or apprentice, and it's used 268 times. The other is adelphoi, which we translate brothers and sisters, or if you have an old school translation of the Bible, brethren. How good is that? A little chauvinistic, but kind of cool. Never mind. Moving on. It's used upwards of 350 times. This goes all the way back to Jesus himself, who called his apprentices his Adelphoi, or his brothers and his sisters and his family, said things like this, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother, is my family, or things like this. He took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying this, this meal, and at the time it was a meal, not a cracker and a sip of juice, it was a meal, is my body given for you. Do this, do what? Eat and drink in remembrance of me. What we call church is by definition apprentices of Jesus who live as a family. So it comes as no surprise that the original architecture of the church was a table in a home. In fact, the weekly gathering itself, which was on a Sunday night because Sunday was a work day in the Roman world, is not, was, it itself was a meal. It's not that they ate a meal before or after the main event, it's that the meal was the main event. Paul in Corinthians writes, when you come together to eat, when you come together, he means for your Sunday gathering. And notice he does not say to sing or to listen to John Mark talk at you or whatever. He says, when you come together to eat. In fact, the original apprentices of Jesus even had a name for the weekly gathering. Do you know what it was? Anybody want to nerd out? It was called the love feast. How 60s is that? <laughs> right? The love feast, or in Greek, the agape feast. Tertullian, a bishop, second century, as well as a theologian, writes this about his church's weekly gathering. Quote, our feast explains itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape. Whatever it costs, man, even if it costs time and money to put it all together, our outlay in the name of piety is gain, meaning we give, we get back more than we give. Since with the good things of the feast, we benefit the needy. As with God himself, a particular respect is shown to the lonely. So it was an act of social justice. This is before government welfare, and so the poor would come to the church for food. The participants, before reclining, you would eat kind of on your side, taste first of prayer to God, as much as eaten as satisfied the cravings of hunger, as much as drunk as befits the chase. Some of you just memorize that really fast. Uh -huh. After, each is asked to stand forth and sing as he can a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composing. As the feast commended with prayer, so with prayer it is closed. I love how simple it all was. You get together, you pray, you eat a meal, and then I love that part, you each stand up and sing a song. <laughs> We're so doing this Tuesday night with my community. Like, Pam, you're up next. Is this an original or Hillsong, Bethel, or you? Like what? I love it. And then you pray again. And we have other writings about teaching and prophecy and healing. And there was more, I'm sure. My point is, this is it. The love feast. The agape feast. The church. What does it say about the modern church that we call our weekly time a service? As if it's the pastor's job to provide goods and services to the religious consumer rather than a love feast 
when we come together around a table as family. My point is, central to our apprenticeship to Jesus is eating and drinking with other apprentices of Jesus and doing life together as a family. This is a very simple idea. Very simple. I have like no, nothing to wow you tonight. A kind of weird architecture thing. It's very simple from here on out. Very simple idea. Most of the most dangerous, provocative, and life-changing ideas are. But it's an idea that I think we have tragically lost over the millennia. And it's more than just an idea, it is a practice that I would argue we need to recapture. Over the last few centuries, at least in the West, in spite of our stage and our stained glass and our sound system and all of the professionalism, and I'm not against any of that at all, we have watched our society drift away from God into secularism. And I can't help but wonder if one subplot in the much larger and complex story of secularization is that we have lost sight of this practice. After all, the words communion and community and companion all come from the same Latin root, cum, meaning together, and panis, meaning bread. That's what community is. That's what a companion is, somebody that you break bread together with. Meals do that. Meals catalyze community. They take friendship and they turn it into family. Without that tie, the ties that bind us grow weak in a secular society. As Leonard Sweet, in his book From Table to Tablet, about the shift in society, he said this, an untabled faith is an unstable faith. I love that. A lot of followers of Jesus in the West have an untabled faith. I mean, it's a faith where eating and drinking around a table with other followers of Jesus is not a core practice. An untabled faith is an unstable faith. A neglect of the table in our churches is echoed in our families and communities. He's right. This is not just a lost art in the church, but in society as a whole. There was a fun read in The Atlantic, I'm sure a few of you caught it a while back, called The Importance of Eating Together, that summarized all the recent statistical data that all points to the exact same conclusion. There is a direct corollary between how many times a family eats together each week and how the children do in all sorts of areas, from academic performance to obesity to everything in between. For example, children and families that don't regularly eat together are 40% more likely to be obese, as well as at risk for teenage pregnancy, drug and alcohol abuse, depression, anxiety, whereas children and families that eat together and on a regular basis have lower rates of all of the above, um, higher graduation rates, have better relationships, with mom and dad. Some mental health professionals are going so far as to say the solution for well-being is simple. Eat together as a family. We'll talk more about that next week. Some recent neurobiology that basically says the happiest human beings ever are is around a table with family and friends. The only way to improve upon that level of happiness is to do it outside, which is kind of good news for July, kind of bad news for Portland, but we'll take what we can get. And yet, the Norman Rockwell image of the family around a table is hopelessly out of date. Divorce is the new normal for over half of all couples. You have the redefinition of family and marriage and sexuality and now even gender over the last just few decades. It's mind-bending. Most families, in particular in a city, traditional or modern, can't afford to live on one income anymore, so there's no partner to stay home and prep dinner or whatever it is. Again, not moralizing this, just tell the story. Most parents don't even know how to cook anymore. The average American family, this is crazy, now spends the same amount on fast food as they do on groceries every month. 
The average American eats out one out of five, I'm sorry, eats one out of five meals in the car. I mean, literally on the go, which Michael Pollan in his book Cooked points out as a problem because when we eat out, we usually don't eat nearly as healthy as when we eat at home. And so you have skyrocketing rates of unhealth and obesity, which leads to a recent stat that only, listen to this, only 17% of American families regularly sit down for a meal. Over half of them do it over TV. And when they do eat together, this was crazy to me, one study, really recent study, said that the average meal time 60 years ago was an hour and a half. Now it's down to 12 minutes. And the family is the building block of society. So it comes as no surprise that we see this trend across the board. In society as a whole, over the last three, read another stat recently, over the last three decades, there's been a 45% decline in hospitality in the U.S., an open home, come on over, a neighbor, friend, family member, whatever, cut in half. As a result, we live in a world full of lonely people. As Mother Teresa said, loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. But before, we boast that the church is the solution to the problem of loneliness in the West, and I actually believe that it is. But before we start to brag and get all into that, we have to remember that we come to the church as we are. It's the beauty of Jesus. He meets us where we are, not where we should be. Wherever you're at tonight, way down the path of apprenticeship to Jesus, and you're basically Gerald Griffin or whoever you are, or like you're just getting started and your whole life is in shambles. Jesus meets you where you are, not where you should be, and says, let us walk together. Here's the next step. Here's the next step, one day at a time. That's beautiful, but the flip side to that is when we come in here, we come as we are. We don't edit who we are. We come good, bad, and ugly, and we drag all of our loneliness, our lonely people all around you, all of the emotional baggage from our family of origin, all of the pain of that divorce or that father wound or whatever, all of our hurry, all of our workaholism, all of our addiction, we drag all of that into our life together and we come here for healing from Jesus. Remember that word salvation in the New Testament can also be translated healing. In fact, we read two English words all from the New Testament, somebody was saved or somebody was healed. This is the exact same Greek word, there's no difference. Think of the Latin, salvation comes from the Latin salve, which is the ointment that you put on a burn or a wound. Salvation is, by definition, healing of your whole soul from the inside out through your body to your social sphere to the city to the world itself in the end at the return of Jesus to the cosmos. Like that is, it's the healing of the soul. That is salvation. And I can't think of a better practice to partner with Jesus to heal the soul of the church in the West and maybe even at least pitch into the West itself in eating and drinking. After all, the center of this practice is love. Remember that in the New Testament, a synonym for eating and drinking is hospitality. And if you were here last, word, last week, just to remind you, that word hospitality in Greek, the language of the New Testament, is philoxenia. It's a compound word from this root word philo, which is one of three Greek words for love. And it's more specifically the kind of love between a brother and a sister or a mom and a dad. It's family love. Think of um, the birthplace of our nation, Philadelphia, or the city of brotherly love, named after the ancient Greek, Greek city that we read about in Revelation 2, Philadelphia. Literally means the city of brotherly love, or it can also be translated sisterly love. 
Love is what hospitality is all about. And this is at the very center of the way of Jesus. Jesus said the most important command in all of the library of Scripture is to love God by your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. The end of his life, just before his death, he said a new command I give you, three words, love one another. And then he sat down for a meal, and then he picked up a towel. We all dig this idea of love, but love is messy and time-consuming and a bit of a pain and inconvenient. And so it's easy to turn love into this sappy kind of sentimental idea rather like this political idea of equality and tolerance or the hallmarky kind of feeling, I love you, rather than a practice. But in the teachings of Jesus and the writings in the New Testament, love isn't a feeling as much as it's an action. Even more than that, it is a fundamental disposition of the heart where you, your heart, the fulcrum of your desire and your will, you will the good of another ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself. That is love as defined by Jesus of Nazareth and the writers of the Bible. And not only is hospitality or philoxenia, love of the stranger, not only is it an expression of love, it is one of the most tangible, concrete, flesh and blood expressions of love there is. Here's a meal, here's a cup of coffee, here's a Swedish cake or whatever your thing is. Here's a couch and a blanket. Here's a guest bedroom to spend the night. Here's relationship. Here's a listening ear. It is a tangible way to love one another. It's one of the best ways we have to love one another. Again, Rosaria Butterfield, who coined that phrase we love, radically ordinary hospitality. And I love that just because this is so ordinary. Everything that we're talking about this summer is so, like you do this You eat multiple times a day and multiple times a week, but yet it's so radical at the same time. Has this to say about how hospitality isn't just for those outside the church, but first and foremost for those inside. She writes this, God calls Christians to practice hospitality in order to build loving Christian communities. That's how you do it. To build nightly table fellowship. Notice, nightly, not even weekly with fellow image bearers to ease the pain of orphanhood, widowhood, and prison. The gospel call that renders strangers into neighbors into family of God is all pretty straight up when you read the Bible, especially the book of Acts. And it requires both hosts and guests, not just one or the other, as giving and receiving are good and sacred and connect people and communities in important ways. Meaning what? Meaning this has to start inside our church long before it has the potential to spread outside to our city. I think of Paul's line to the church in Galatia, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, let's love everybody, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Or Romans 13, that line, again, from last month, practice hospitality, one of the many commands in the New Testament to follow Jesus' example and love people through the practice of hospitality. In context, that in Romans 13 is all about life together in the family of God. And notice that practice hospitality, it's a verb with no direct object, meaning it's to anybody and it's to everybody, inside the church, outside the church, forget the line between the two. After all, the end goal of our apprenticeship to Jesus is not just to love people and practice hospitality. It's to, from the inside out, become loving people and become hospitable people. Does that make sense? There's a difference between the act of, I really can't stand my boss, but love him in Jesus' name. 
which is great. Start there. Like, start there. But there's a difference between that and you have been transformed and your interior world has been terraformed by the Spirit of Jesus through your partnership, through practice, or the spiritual disciplines are all about, and life and community where you have become a loving person and therefore a hospitable person. The two, in my mind, are wrapped up together. We of course, need to hear this because there are lonely people all around you to your right and to your left. A lot of you are here and you're thinking, I am the lonely man or woman. Again, we're the first adult generation. That's the byproduct of widespread divorce. We're in a city where so many people are transplant plants. It's bizarre when I meet somebody who grew up like in the city, like, wait, what? You actually grew up here? You're like a unicorn or something in our city. There are, due to that and so many other factors, there are orphans, real and imagined, all around you. There are widows and widowers all around you. Despite our Sunday best, there are people here tonight, my guess is, who don't have enough money to cover rent or to buy groceries this week, all around you. But there are also brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and people with a home or apartment and extra food in the fridge all around you too. And Jesus' call on all of his apprentices, on you and on me, is to follow his example, to love via the practice of hospitality, to live as family, to become from the inside out pervaded and permeated by the love of God, which means to become hospitable people who welcome people to our table. On that note, our practice for the coming week is all on practicingtheway.org slash eating and drinking. It's so straightforward. I mean, this is just bare bones stuff tonight. There's a few exercises there. The main one is just to eat a meal with a fellow follower of Jesus, with a brother or a sister in Adelphoi. If you're already in a Bridgetown community, that's really easy. Just show up and no text message bail last minute. You know who you are, right? Just show up Tuesday night or whenever, eat dinner with your community. Done. That's it. And if you want to take it to the next level, invite somebody from here or off the street or that you know from the church out for lunch or over for dinner or set up a barbecue. Apparently, it's like 95 degrees on Thursday. Oh, set up a barbecue. If you have air conditioning, please invite my family and I over. Practice this. And as you eat together, pay attention to the movements of your heart. Welcome the Holy Spirit. Tap into the love of the Father for the man or the woman in front of you. And when you look for somebody to eat with this week, just a reminder, don't look for people who just are like you. You know, like attracts like is the law of the universe. And so normally when you meet somebody, you're like, I like this person. It's because they dress kind of like you and they're kind of same stage of life as you and they kind of, you know, voted for the right person like you did. And, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. And you think, man, I, you remind me of me. I really like you. Like, <laughs> I like you a lot, right? And so we, we, we're so in love with ourselves. And that's not all bad, but don't just look for people who are like you. Families, I just want to say a word here, pastoral word. Families, look for single people to invite into your life together particular single people don't have family in town or don't have family who follow Jesus or who have some kind of a wound from that. Single people, listen, your turn. Look for families. 
I think that there is a wedge between single people and families in the church that I think is alive from the pit of hell itself. I think so many single people feel like they are not wanted by families, which is not true. If you walk in and you're single and you're somewhere between the age of, I don't know, 16 and 30, you are like a demigod to an eight-year-old or whatever. Just single man, single woman, let's play, right? It's just there's some sociological, psychological thing I don't get, but it's, it's a thing. Trust me, it's a thing. And a lot of parents or families are lonely. A lot of full-time parents in particular who feel imprisoned in the living room with Johnny or whatever it is and are dying for more relationship but just feel like I would never invite a single person over. We're not cool. Our house is a mess. Johnny is three. Enough said. Whatever it is. And I just, man, we need each other. Single people need families. Families need single people. It's about giving and receiving. Remember, if you follow Jesus, you come to a home, you are both host and guest. Remember that idea. You don't just come to receive, you come to give. You're not a lost cause or a charity. You, are, you come as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven and as a conduit of the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, whether you open the door from the inside or the outside. But look for single people, look for families, look for orphans or just people that don't have family in town. Look for widows and widowers. Look for people traveling in need of a place to stay. Look for the immigrant or the refugee. Sign up for Refugee Care Collective. Many of the refugees coming into our city are from the Sudan and our brothers and sisters in the family of God from a war-torn area. And remember, when you open that door, you receive a man, a woman, a child as Christ himself into your home and into your heart. We have, that's basically it. We have a few other exercises that are a bit more imaginative to reimagine your table as a place of family and imagine your home as a place of hospitality. A ton of you are way down the road on this, but for some of us, it's brand new territory, especially if, like me, you grew up in a suburban setting or in a white majority culture. We just have so much to learn from other cultures around the world and even in our own country. I think of the difference between the Spanish maxim mi casa es su casa, and the Anglo maxim, a man's home is his castle. <laughs> One of those is a bit more Jesus-y than the other, right? Would you, I'll let you do the math on which one is more Jesus-y than the other. My point is some of us, for me, for my wife, this was a quick jump for her and her family of origin. For me, and my family's over here, my family's amazing. But this was a long, slow road. This was a, a reimagination and a reorientation for me to hospitality as central, not on the margins, but central to the way of Jesus. To end, let's circle back just to a little bit more on architecture, and we'll end here. The sociologist Robert Putnam of Harvard University, in his landmark book on the decline of community in America, it's called Bowling Alone, and he writes about the decline of community across our society, not just in the church through secularization, but um, in the bowling league, which I'm fine with that. Some things should die. Um, <laughs> in, in the Elks Lodge, like whatever. You just see the decline of community across the Western world. And he writes about there's an architectural shift at the same time that points to this in our society. It's the shift from building homes with front porches and living rooms all in the front of the home and the center of the living room being the coffee table to now, for decades now, building homes with back decks where the center of the living area is the back of the house and the center of the room is not the coffee table but the entertainment council. 
So homes were literally designed a few generations ago, drive through the east side, for you to sit out on the front porch with your coffee. Oh, Bob's home from work. Oh, Sarah's out walking the dog. Oh, Johnny got loose again. What, Johnny, the child got loose? I was thinking a dog, but then it was a, not really a dog name. Fido got loose again, whatever. Children, dog, it's all pretty similar. Um, whatever. And it's designed for you to live with other people, a front room with a one large window facing the street. Oh, so-and-so's home. Oh, come on in. Nowadays, I mean, you walk through a new neighborhood, you can't even tell if somebody's home or not because all of the lights are in the back of the house. You're like, is that like a keep the burglar away light in the back or is that so-and-so's home? And it's no longer about the coffee table or hospitality or family or community. The family's practically a lost cause. It's about the entertainment. It's about escape into the endless cornucopia of Netflix and Wi-Fi. All that to say, to live the way of Jesus, to live around a table in a home as family, you're swimming against the tide of all of our society. I mean, literally, architecture itself is against you. Your entryway is against you, unless if you have a cool old home on the east side. And yet, this is the way forward to the healing of our society. Jean Vanier, who I just have so much respect for, the founder of La Arche, uh, intentional communities now all over the world, writes this. In years to come, we are going to need many small communities which will welcome lost and lonely people, offering them a new form of family and a sense of belonging. In the past, Christians who wanted to follow Jesus opened hospitals and schools. Now there are so many of these, Christians must commit themselves to the new communities of welcome, to live with people who have no other family and to show them that they are loved and can grow to greater freedom and that they in turn can love and give life to others. How good is that? If your community's in a rough spot, just write that out and read it before your weekly meal. That's what it's all about. By the way, he said that in his beautiful book, Community and Growth, which was published in 1979, upwards of 40 years ago. The time has come for new communities of welcome to live with people who have no other family. So to end, just want to invite you to all of you that are already in a Bridgetown community, which is I think about 70% of you, or already doing life in this way in some other structure, but with other followers of Jesus around a table on a regular basis, I just want to say well done. That's it, just don't give up. I think of that line in Galatians, do not grow weary in well-doing, in due season you will reap a harvest if you do not faint been living in community now for just about 10 years. And over the last decade, same group of people, highs, lows, fun seasons, not fun seasons, I've come to realize a few things. One, that community is really good but really hard. The idea sounds amazing. The reality is a little bit less, right? People show up late, they bail via text message. Ah, you're seeing me working out my therapy right here tonight. It's a thing. You know, they eat all the guacamole, they, <laughs> they drink too much, they tell you a story about some person you don't know and don't care about. Um, like what, like it's, it's life, it's life. But yet, it's one of the most important pathways to transformation. And I would go so far to say that without community, you will never reach your full potential. 
you will never grow and mature into the vision of who God made you to be in the beginning. It's not how Jesus set it up. We come and we follow Jesus together as a family. And I just wanna say, don't give up. If you're in a hard season, if you're in a great season, enjoy it. If you're in a hard season, just read John Manier before you show up and show up and stick with it. What is that saying? What's with the Woody Allen line? 90% of life is just showing up? Something like that? I think I misquoted him. He's Woody Allen, whatever. <laughs> it's true. It's just that. To those of you not in a community, whether you're not in a Bridgetown community, we have, I think, upwards of 70 of them now, or you're just not living this way at all. You're here on a Sunday. Well done. So happy that you're here. We just, and we're not against Sunday. We're not against church buildings. We're not against stained glass or any of that. We just think that this by itself is nowhere near enough. At the best stuff, this is a launch pad. The best stuff happens not here in a building with hundreds of people for two hours, but all week long around a table in a home with 10 or 20 people Monday through Saturday. This is life. It's the both and, not one or the other, but life in the kingdom. We just want to invite you. Um, you know, Jesus, te- we get all of this from Jesus' teachings and his life. And one of my favorite things about Jesus' teachings is so often his teachings don't have a command in them. Have you noticed that? So often there's no command. He just tells stories about the way life actually works best. His teaching on family is no different. Whoever does the will of my father is my brother, my sister, my mother. Is there a command in there? No, there's no command. Make sure you show up Tuesday night for dinner with the same 12 people. It's not there. Now, Jesus lived that way and then said, come and follow me, follow my example, for sure. But there's no command. He just says, this is how life actually works best. And he exposes the lies of the individualism of our Western society. And he exposes it as the lie it is. That does not lead to life, it leads to death. That does not lead to flourishing. What you call autonomy or even freedom, it does not lead to life. Life together as a family, that is how life actually works best. And with no guilt trip, not even a pep talk, we just wanna invite you to the family, invite you to the way of Jesus, invite you to life around a table. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.